Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome again to the program. The master of the ceremony said, that's the best wine. Wow, well, this is awesome. And everyone knew it. And all eyes turned to Jesus, so they knew How it. How long has it been since you've witnessed a miracle? Real miracles are significant and the work of the divine. At a wedding in Cana, Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine, literally. It was the first outward evidence that he was more than just a man and raised questions amongst those who were close to him. Jesus was the Son of God, but even in the presence of miracles, some still couldn't or wouldn't believe in him. Tonight, Dr. Corbett is again in the New Testament book of John and explores that first miracle from Jesus, water into wine. Let's join him now. All right, if you have your Bible, please open to the Gospel of John. And we're going to have a, a little dive in uh, the second chapter in a moment. Before we dive too deep, my name's Andrew, by the way, if, if I haven't met you. And uh, my wife, whom I serve, is uh, Kim, who's over here. As every husband serves their wife. I don't know why there are women who are smirking here. It's, uh, anyway. And I was going to bring out something that, that I received this week. And I didn't because I forgot. My mum uh, found something going through because my, my dad passed away in June and she was going through some of his things and found a Bible that his grandfather had given him and she asked me if I would like it and I, I thought that's pretty cool. I discovered it was actually my, it looks like it was my great-grandfather's from about 1850 and it's interesting going through it, seeing what is underlined and put coloured pencil in the side of, which you know they would have used to really show that this passage meant something to them. Kim wondered, and I wondered too, I wonder if he prayed for you. I wonder if he prayed for me. And my mum and I were talking about this, and she said it's something that we heard when, when we were growing up in Geelong, at uh, Life Centre Geelong, Pastor Joe Bowes would often say to parents, don't just pray for your children, pray for their children. Uh, the weird thing is, their children weren't even married yet. So the idea of praying for your children, praying for their, their future spouse, and then praying for their children and children and children and so on, is, uh, I, re I reckon it's a really great idea. One of the things we do fairly regularly when we sit at our dinner table to have a meal together is I'll pray for my children's future spouses and as it turns out two of my children are already married now and the, their spouses were, were prayed for. We were praying for Ebony, my oldest daughter, praying for her future husband for years and he's sitting at the back there and he is an answer to prayer and he's a, he's a real blessing to our family and we're praying for Tyrone, and he uh, got married in the middle of this year, in July, and we're praying for his wife, whose name is Stephanie. And now we're praying for my other two daughters, and we pray Ruby's only 16, going on 26, and uh, we're praying for her future husband. I mean, he's going to need it. <laughs> and just, just saying, just saying... So, 
One of the things that has got me thinking about praying for our children and our children's children and our children's children's children is how often we see in the Bible that great leaders neglected their own children. You think of Samuel, the great prophet, the last prophet before the kings began. And it says that the kings were necessary. The people cried out for a king because Samuel's sons were wicked. And you think, how on earth could someone like Samuel end up having kids who are off the charts? Well, the answer is pretty easily, actually, as I'm sure there are people here who can testify that that can happen. And when we look at at other people in the Bible, we can reflect on the same thing. They were so caught up in the now, they forgot about the yet to come. And one of the things that I noted in reading Stuart Piggins' book about the Christian history of Australia, which I'm ploughing through at the moment, is he said that group that met in London in the 1790s that planned to change the cultural flavour of England and one of the key things they planned to do was to send a fleet of, I think, 11 ships to Australia with convicts and a chaplain. That these convicts could have a second chance because the overcrowded prisons in England only had one end of the road for these people and that was execution. And so this Clapham sect well, they met in the, the town of, or the, I guess it's a town, or it's probably not even a city now, but it's a part of the greater London. And William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore and these great people, great people. But many of them were so caught up in the dire situation that England was in at that time that they neglected their own children. And many of their children did not continue on in the ways of the Lord. That's tragic. So I'm saying that to say, I'm today sharing something that has been passed down to us. It's one of the reasons why we're having one of the ancient creeds of the church read, so that you get it, that we are the fruit of someone or some group of people praying generations and generations ago for this moment, for this church, for this people to be here. When I came here in 1995, Judith is the only one left. Judith Brain sitting right there. And in no hurry to go anywhere else. Thank you, Judith. But there were people who were born old who were part of this church. I mean, when I got here as a 30-something-year-old, they were, real, they were so old. I mean, some of them were 50. Some of them were 60 and some of them were, I think the average age was actually 65. But they were praying for this church. They were praying for this day. They were praying for us. I wonder what, and I wrote about this some time ago in the weekly pastor's desk. What's this church going to look like in 200, 200 years? You know, I, I just dreamt, what, I'm the third pastor of this church. What's the 17th pastor going to be like? In 2222, 
That's when I figured that this church would have have its 17th pastor. What's it going to be like? What's she going to be like? What are they going to be like? What are, what's this church going to be like? Well, the, one of the things that I've discovered in reading God's word, as we will see in the Gospel of John when we get there, is that Jesus prayed for this church and this day. In John 17, he says, I have sheep that are not yet. They are not of this flock yet. They are to come. They are 2,000 years down the track. Good grief. Who prays prayers that have an impact 2,000 years to come? God does. Thank you. And what an encouragement for us to pray for this year. We can be faithful in our generation, but not be negligent of the one to come. That's why I was really feeling this in my heart as we prayed for the young people that came out. That the young people are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today, but the leaders of tomorrow, or and the leaders of tomorrow. And we want to make sure that we have godly young leaders who take the baton out of our hands. With that in mind, I'm sharing with you from the Gospel of John, and this was the last Gospel to be written. It was the Gospel that John and The Apostle Andrew talked about when John had moved to Ephesus looking after the mother of Jesus. And we find in this gospel that he refers to the mother of Jesus pretty much more than any other gospel because he was a son to her. Remember Jesus on the cross? John, this is now your mother. Mary, this is now your son. He will look after you. And he did. And and tradition tells us that he did. And tradition also tells us that after Matthew wrote his gospel, Mark wrote his gospel, Luke wrote his gospel, which was in wide circulation before 60 AD. Now I know that you'll find, you'll find books that will tell you the gospels weren't written until 85 AD, which I'm going to tell you is remarkably difficult when most of the, the original apostles were killed before 64 AD. It's just really difficult to write when you're dead. So these, these Gospels were written well before 64 AD and in circulation. And John's probably written sometime just before 64 AD. And it was at the instigation of Andrew saying to him, it's, as, as tradition has it, it's been passed down. It was a, a very early record of the discussion that, that was had that Andrew, the Apostle Andrew said to him, you really should write your recollection Because you have a perspective on Jesus that Matthew, Mark and Luke didn't get. Because you were the one who was close to him. When he he wanted to be alone, he took you. You think about the number of times Jesus went alone to pray and there's John recording what he prayed. So this guy had an interesting perspective on Jesus. And so this last gospel is so rich and and the danger i've got and i've talked about this with kim this week the danger i've got is it is so rich it is so complex it is so deep that i don't want to drown you so please i need your prayer right now to be at least understood about what i want to share from the text i don't want to say anything that text doesn't actually intend to say but i want us to understand what it actually does say so would you join me in prayer father i pray I pray for myself. I pray, Lord, that I would hide. I would disappear. Your word would become very clear, that we would hear your voice. We would hear what you have said and 
are saying, Lord, help me not to interfere with that process. And Lord, I pray for those who are joining with us now, joining with us here in this room, that you open their ears. You give them ears to hear. You would help them to understand what I'm trying to say, even though I may not say it very well. And I ask, oh God, that there would be a generation yet born who will benefit from what we do right now and I pray for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, which means I agree with that. So this is the last gospel, the last gospel to be written. We are in the background here of the slide. There's a scene, which I'll explain to it when we get to that scene. There's a scene with Jesus and someone. But then behind that again is a copy of the John Ryland's fragment of the Gospel of John. It's um, the earliest fragment of the Gospel of John that we have. It's from chapter 18. And it kind of, as you know, from a historian's point of view, when you realize when a document's coming from the second century, like that fragment is, it tells you this, which what we are now looking at, which is terrible English, but what we're about to look at in, in the Gospel of John was in wide circulation very, very early and accepted as the gospel there's all sorts of reasons for that so the last gospel and john writing around about 60 61 62 maybe 63 63 could be could be possible is writing this gospel with a very clear intention he wants to convert people this he he uses the word believe i've mentioned to you matthew uses it about nine or ten times so does luke so does mark John uses the word believe 87 times in his gospel. So this is a big deal. This is why it's, scholars call John's gospel the gospel of belief. Because John is just straight up. He doesn't want to tell you about the wise men coming on camels. He doesn't want to tell you about frankincense and myrrh. He doesn't want to tell you about Jesus out in the wilderness with Satan. He wants to, just, he wants to convert you. He wants you to see who Jesus really was. He wants you to understand why he, John, loved Jesus as a result of spending time with Jesus. He wants you to love Jesus as a result of reading his gospel. Gospel means an account of Jesus. There's not, an account, there's not a gospel of Buddha. There's not a gospel of Muhammad. The gospel genre of literature only applies to Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at now is the first of the seven signs that John talks about in pointing people to Jesus. And he was a, Jesus was a Jew, John was a Jew, John had a heart for the Jews, even though he was living in Ephesus, which was a part of Turkey. The church had a very strong presence in Ephesus. And John still wanted his people, the Jews, to come to Christ, to believe in him and to to give their lives to him, to be converted to Jesus. This was his mission. And so there's so much Jewishness about this. In our previous section, the last part of John chapter 1, we talked about John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. To a Jew, that was like the Lamb of God. The, the, not ah, the. Every time they did Passover, which is what our communion is a type of, they celebrated a Passover lamb. Like they all took one and they had one but now John the Baptist said no 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 this is the lamb of God not a lamb of God this is the lamb of God who John the Baptist said takes away the what of the world sins of the world 
the pain, the hurt, the regret, the shame, the guilt. He takes it away. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad definitely can't do it. New Age can't do it. Forgive me for saying this. Some of you aren't going to like this, but Jordan Peterson can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Take away your guilt and your shame. Take away that pain of the past and give you a brand new start. And this now, as we dive into chapter 2, we're going to read about the first sign of the seven signs that John mentions. I've sort of wrestled with what to call this because I always try to be clever with what I try to call things, but this is not very clever. This is the first sign, water into wine. And, and you know why I call it water into wine? Because that's what he did. So in thinking about it, I thought, but further on in the chapter, as we'll see, the bizarre thing is having turned these huge barrels of purification water, these huge water jars, huge into wine which the the master of the ceremony said that's the best wine wow well this is awesome and everyone knew it and all eyes turned to jesus so they knew it and then jesus goes to jerusalem and the religious elites as we'll see in a moment go well if you're really the messiah why don't you give us a sign oh you idiots you don't drink what's going on here You, you idiots so with that in mind i thought maybe i could have called us called this water into wine, show us a sign. Oh, you dopes. (laughs) But I didn't, so don't worry about that. I'm going to delete that slide. So here's the question to people who are not believers. And I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to define this word believer because I heard someone say this. I heard a very senior preacher once say this, and and he was visiting from America and and he was speaking at a, a little seminar and I went to, and he said this, and I jolted me and he said that word believer is a precious word i thought it is and as soon as he said it i re- it was like my eyes opened i thought actually it is i never realized because you can be a believer that two plus two is four and it doesn't do anything it doesn't say anything about you but when you get called a believer it says something about you. Something has transformed in you. Here's the question, unbeliever. So you're not a believer. Unbeliever, what would it take for you to become a believer? How many of us have, don't give me a show of hands, but how many of us have people that are in our world that do not believe the Christian message? They do not believe you. They are not Christians. We've all got people in our world, I hope, who are like that. And this year, I'm particularly going to encourage you that if you haven't, then pray for some. Pray to find some. But imagine if you asked them this question. You know, they've had an argument and said, oh, yeah, well, you, it's all right for you. You can believe what you want to believe, but I'm never going to believe that. Here's the question. Well, what would it take for you to become a believer? What would it take for you to become a believer? Here's my definition of a believer. A believer is someone who trusts the, what's that word? Evidence. And then becomes a follower of Christ and what you're going to see in the gospel of John is you're going to see that people believed that Jesus could then you're going to see the same people got to know Jesus they didn't just believe he could do something like a miracle they actually believed in Jesus 
They believed that he was who he claimed to be. And it didn't stop there. They then, next step, became a follower because of what they believed. And so I began to see when this American seminary professor was visited from Westminster Seminary in California, and he said this, I thought, wow. And I realized, yeah, that word believer is... That is, a, that is a rich word. That is, that is, wow. But this is what it means. To trust the evidence. Now, for many people who think that Christians are less than bright, and I'm not pointing at anyone in particular here, but the accusation is that you believe in fairy tales. You believe in superstitious nonsense. You are dim-witted. And, and if you ever get asked, well, why are you a Christian? I hope the answer can be something like this. Because I have good reasons to believe it's true. I have good reasons to believe it's true. And that's what a believer is. Someone who's looked at the evidence and they believe, but it doesn't stop there. They become a follower. That's what a believer is. In this last gospel, John is an eyewitness. And John's eyewitness account of his interaction with Christ and how people responded. And this is all the way through his gospel. People believed, people rejected. Jesus would do the most outstanding miracle and people would go, that's it. No one can do that unless they really are God in the flesh. But then the same event would evoke another response. Huh, let's kill him. It's like, what? The, reject- the belief, the rejection. Both of them lead to action. I believe, therefore I'll follow. I will obey. I will live for him. Reject, let's kill him. An action. That is exactly why he died on the cross. Because of those two responses. The people who rejected him ultimately put him to death. You can't have a third option even today. Those who believed, committed their lives to follow Christ. And this is how they did it. They were baptised. Baptism. I've heard people say, oh, I don't need to be baptised to be a Christian. Yeah, that's true. You don't need to wear clothes to be warm either, but geez, it helps. And you don't need to become a Christian to be baptised. And as someone said to me when I was very young, And I wrestled with this because I was born to a Methodist mother and a nominal Anglican dad. And when my Methodist mother married my nominal Anglican dad, he was given an ultimatum. You either get real with God or not. And he did. And that led to... Both of my parents, when they had an experience with the Holy Spirit and came into a Pentecostal church, and they understood this point about following Christ involves baptism. My middle-aged parents were both baptised in a pool in someone's backyard. And this challenged me, because I'd recently been confirmed as an Anglican. And I thought... I was sprinkled as a baby. And the more I looked at scripture, the more I thought, no, 
It's up to me to follow through the waters of baptism, to be baptised. And that's what every follower of Christ did in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the Gospels as well. Now here's something we need to have a look at before we jump into John chapter 2. There's a difference between being sceptical and being cynical. The sceptic says, I will not believe something for which there is no evidence. The cynic says, no, I'm not, not going to believe. No matter what the evidence. That's the difference. And might I say, scepticism, examining a sceptic who examines the evidence, and the evidence is found to be correct, becomes a believer. The cynic who says, I'm, I, I don't care about the evidence. I'm not going to believe in your God. Why not? Because it means I won't be able to sleep with my girlfriend anymore. That could be the truth of it. I won't be able to look at pornography on the internet anymore because you Christians tell me that's a form of fornication. And it is. That's true. You come to Christ and become a believer, things are going to have to change. But it doesn't change before you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by doing all those things that you think make you good. But there is a change. So that's why some people I think are cynical, because if they come to Christ, it means all their lifestyle choices will be exposed as being wrong. What we're going to see here now as we jump into chapter 2, that there's a difference between the sceptics, the common people of, in English we call it Cana, it's actually probably Canna or Canna. So I'll say the way we normally call this place, Cana. And the religious elites of Jerusalem. These are two cities at either end of, of Israel. And I, I wonder if John's done this deliberately. So if you've got your Bible, and I hope you have, and I hope you can follow with me, well, it'll be on the screen, but gee, it's helpful if you've got your own Bible to have a look at this. It says this, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. There you go. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So these are big jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, that had now become wine and did not know where it came, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, John the Apostle tells us, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
I'll just point out Cana. We're not exactly sure where it is. There's six really good possibilities. It's definitely west of the Sea of Galilee. It's in a hilly area, but we're not exactly sure. But we do know this. It had an abundant supply of fresh water. The word Cana comes from an Aramaic sort of word that means kind of place of reeds. And, you know, as I, I thought, as I did my research on this, Cana, fresh water, place of reeds. Anyone know what Lagana means? Did someone say fresh water? You get a Mars bar because that's what Lagana means, fresh water. You ever gone down to the river and seen what's growing in the side? I was, I was, I was developing my prayer life yesterday with Ruby as she's getting her owls up on her L's. And we went beside the Rosevere. Come on, come back. Rosevere's River. <laughs> and there's all the reeds. And she said, well, what's all that? I said, oh, that's, that's one of the brilliant plans that, the, that someone had that's right up there with introducing rabbits to Australia. It's called rice grass. And it's this reed stuff. And I thought, Cana, a place of reeds and abundant fresh water. But the point is, historians go, we're not quite sure where it was. In other words, this place was so small, so insignificant, we can't even be sure where it is. Oh, I know. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll go there and there's an Orthodox church there and it says, this is where Jesus turned the water into wine. Yeah, and pull the other one, it plays jingle bells. Because that's a tourist thing. Oh, no, no, I know. Just send emails to Vanessa and she can deal with them. So, all right. <clears throat> After this, he went down. So it's a hilly country. He goes down to Capernaum, even though Capernaum was north, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The part now, phew, end of that story. John says, I need you to know this. Jesus did this miracle and people believed. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which is a sign of saying up in the sense of this is a special place, Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written. Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, here's the, here's the thing. These traders were doing something in the temple precinct that they were forbidden to do. You know what the use of pigeons in sacrifices was meant to be something given to the poor, not sold. When Mary and Joseph came to offer their offering for Jesus, for his circumcision ceremony, they brought a pigeon. Why? Because they were poor. This was a poor offering. And these people were abusing and taking advantage of people for religious purposes. And all of this was overseen by the religious elite. So get it. Jesus does this. And by the way, if you're into deep Bible study, this is the first time Jesus did it. 
And he did it again just before he went to the cross. So here's the religious elite. The word has got out that Jesus turned water into wine. Everyone knows it. All Jerusalem's talking about it. We don't know because John doesn't tell us that when Jesus came to Jerusalem and we get a clue of how long Jesus ministered by counting the number of Passovers that he celebrated. But when he came to Jerusalem, he was healing. He was doing things and people saw it. They knew it. And so here's what in the next verse the religious elites say to Jesus, the audacity of them. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? <sighs> you. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, he didn't say that. Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign, he said. The Jews then said to him, and this is how we know that there were two whippings and cleansing of the temples. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, get this, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Can you see how this begs the question, why, why were the religious elite not prepared to go, oh my goodness, he's opening blind eyes, he's healing the lame, he's healing people. This must be the Messiah. Why were they not prepared to accept what was plain the evidence because if they did they would no longer have power everyone's got an ulterior motive for not believing but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man and this is the scary thing. We read in the Gospels that Jesus went to a dinner party with Simon, the Pharisee. And Simon saw a woman come in and begin to pour her tears all over Christ's feet. And he thought to himself, if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, he would know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus, without anyone hearing what Simon said, Jesus says this, Then Simon, I have a question for you. And if I was Simon, I'd go, how did you just hear what I thought? And John says, he knew everyone's thoughts. He knows everyone's thoughts. He knows what you're thinking now. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've said. He knows why you did it. And he is the Lamb of God who can take away sin, guilt, shame and past. Would you please stand? The single greatest strength of Christianity is that it's true. That's it. The weakness of it is that we don't always live up to it. I 
try. I don't always live up to it, but it's true. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel, Part 5, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, a believer is someone who trusts the evidence and becomes a follower of Jesus. Don't wait to see your own miracle before you surrender to the evidence and become a believer in Jesus yourself. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music